right, well, welcome everybody. So this isn't awkward at all, but we're starting over with Easter. That's why the banners are still up. But uh, we've been working our way just through the Gospel of Luke. And as it turned out, um, we did Easter last weekend um, because that's when Easter was celebrated. But now this weekend, we're going to pick it up with the triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19. And we'll get the, the, the deeper version of the Easter story rather than the one-week version that we got last week. Um, as we are going through the Gospel of Luke today, we will be in chapter 18, so if you need a Bible, uh, go ahead and raise your hands, and it looks like Bill will bring one to you so you can have a Bible with you, so you can follow along with us. Um, when we approach the Word, we always want to ask ourselves just a couple of simple questions, uh, which I'm really excited about these questions today, by the way, because I was at a training this weekend by the Billy Graham Association, uh, and in their training, they gave out these little Bibles that they're for new believers, and the little Bibles in there had at the beginning of it, always ask yourself a couple of questions before you approach the Word. Now, they have three questions, but I'm more succinct than they are, and I've summarized those into two questions, uh, very similar to theirs, though. What is God saying to me in His Word, and what am I going to do about it? How am I going to respond to the things that we see? Uh, in other words, what I'm saying is I have a responsibility to proclaim the Word clearly, you have a responsibility to receive it and to do something with it. And so uh, we both have some responsibilities as we approach the Word. Now, in chapter 19, just as a reminder where we are, Jesus has been promising that he's going to go to Jerusalem. When he gets there, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, but then he's going to resurrect again. And so in chapter 19, he's actually going to make it to Jerusalem, finally. He started this journey in Luke chapter 9. That was the first time he said, we're on our way to Jerusalem. And so we've been going week by week by week, just following each chapter to see what he does. Uh, as he goes along the way, though, he continues to do the ministry he's been doing all along. He's seeking and saving those who are lost, and he's preparing his disciples to serve until the day that he returns uh, after his uh, ascension into heaven. So those are the things that we're going to see kind of played out here. Uh, we'll see it played out first uh, through uh, the story or the historical account of a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. Uh, then there'll be this uh, kind of interesting parable uh, about uh, some people who are left in charge of some things while a king is gone. Ultimately, we'll see his triumphal entry. He's going to overturn some tables, and then he's going to start teaching in the temple. So let's pick it up here in chapter 19, verse 1. Uh, he, that's speaking of Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was able to see because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that, that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and he came down and he received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner? Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of all my possessions I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
So again, Jesus is on his journey. He's going to end up in a town called Jericho. You might remember it uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, if you had little kids, it was probably the town of Cherry Coke. It was, that's the way our kids sang the song. Joshua fought the battle of Cherry Coke, Cherry Coke. And the walls came tumbling down. But anyway, uh, Jericho, the walls fell down in Jericho. That city was, of course, destroyed. Herod is going to rebuild that city. Uh, That's this newer city that they'll be visiting. It's kind of a a way station on the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Uh, So, uh, again, just kind of envision in your brain a picture of the nation of Israel. The northern part there is Galilee. That's where Jesus did most of his teaching. That was the region up north. Then there is this, in the middle, this section called Samaria. It's where the Samaritans were. The Samaritans and the Jews didn't get together. And so oftentimes, as the Jews would travel to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, the southern portion of Israel, they wouldn't go through Samaria. They would go around the outside edge of Samaria. And when they got to the top of the Dead Sea, they would get to this way station, this city called Jericho. Now, at this time, it's the Passover time, so Jews are required by the Old Testament law to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So this road would have been very active, very busy. There would have been a lot of people traveling this road, going to worship at the temple for Passover. And so they're stopping off here in Jericho. They're about 15 miles at this point from Jerusalem. So Jesus is getting really close to this city that he's going to, uh, he's been promising that he's going to. But Uh, When he gets through the city of Jericho, uh, there's this guy in the city. His name is Zacchaeus. We know a few things about him from his very famous song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Uh, I recently determined that the wee is just short for weasel because the people did not really like him very much uh, because he was a tax collector, and the tax collectors had a pretty bad reputation. Uh, They were not specifically paid for raising taxes or for charging taxes, What they were allowed to do is to commission that above the tax. And so they could choose an amount above what people were being taxed. And that above amount, that extra amount, was their commission. That was their payment. And so, of course, the people didn't like that, right? The people like, I've got to pay taxes and I've got to pay you. And, of course, it made him a very wealthy man. Uh, No matter how tall he was, he was still a very wealthy man. It says in verse 2 that he was rich, which I think is kind of an interesting contrast to chapter 18. In chapter 18, Jesus met a rich young ruler who asked Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Now we're going to actually meet another rich man who's going to respond in an appropriate fashion. The other guy was sad that he had to sell all his possessions, and he went away unfulfilled, he went away unsaved. Well, Zacchaeus is going to make a different choice. And so uh, that's where we find ourselves. Now, Zacchaeus, being short, was unable to see Jesus because there's this huge crowd of people. Of course, there's all the pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. In addition to that, there's the disciples of Jesus and there's the religious leaders who are always attacking Jesus. So you just kind of imagine this mob moving through your town and you want to see the guy and you're the little guy. And there's nobody to boost you up and put you on your shoulders or anything like that, right? Because nobody likes this guy. He's a tax collector. So he's going to be innovative here. He's going to use some skills he learned as a child. He's going to climb up into a tree 
just so he could see Jesus through the crowd. He's heard about Jesus. He sees everybody's excited about him. Man, I want to meet this guy for myself. I want to see what everybody's talking about. So here he is up in this tree as this crowd comes through town, including Jesus. And Jesus stops at the place. He looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, which, by the way, do you see the little miracle there? How did he know his name was Zacchaeus? Unless he had met him before at some point. But if he had met him before, why would Zacchaeus be so excited about seeing him? It seems they don't know each other, but Jesus calls him by name Zacchaeus. Hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Now imagine Zacchaeus' excitement in this, right? Like Zacchaeus gets all pumped up about this. Like, I just wanted to see the guy, but he noticed me, and he knew my name, and now he wants to hang out with me. See, Zacchaeus is showing this little bit of pursuit of God, and God's returning by pursuing after Zacchaeus. It's a pretty cool situation. So anyway, he, he hurries, he comes down, he receives Jesus gladly. Uh, but when they, it says, saw it, the they must just be the crowd of people that were around Jesus at this time. When they saw it, they began to grumble. <laughs> Jesus is gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And you can imagine as they're grumbling, who else would have heard that besides Jesus? Zacchaeus. The crowd grumbling that Jesus is going to hang out with a, with a sinner. And Zacchaeus is like, oh, who's that? Oh, that's me. <laughs> I'm the sinner that Jesus is going to hang out with today. And it says Zacchaeus stops. He just stops. And then he turns to Jesus in this amazing moment of repentance. And he says, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. Do you see the repentant heart of Zacchaeus here? He was rightly called a sinner. He was a sinner. That's who he was. And not just because he was a tax collector, but this is who people are apart from Jesus Christ. We sin. All of us sin. The crowd that was grumbling was a sinful crowd of people. In fact, their grumbling about Zacchaeus likely was in and of itself sin. The difference was when Zacchaeus was confronted with his sin, he repented. He sought to make it right. And so he sees it right away as the issue could be that he's defrauded people in the crowd. And maybe he understands a little bit that his, his reputation is bad because he's made bad choices and because he's been a bad person and because he's defrauded people. And he just stops in his tracks right there with Jesus. And in that moment, in the middle of the crowd, proclaims he's going to give half of what he has, half of his possessions to the poor. And he's going to pay back those he's defrauded times four. I mean, this is a huge moment of repentance. Now, I might add here, uh, I'm hoping Zacchaeus is a single man. Because <laughs> first of all, <laughs> showing up with the Messiah unannounced might make the wife a little bit panicky. <laughs> and then the cherry on top, also I'm giving away half of our stuff. <laughs> We're going to start with your half. Uh, <laughs> 
But, but I, I do worry, you know, about those types of things. I, I always kind of envision these situations uh, that for him to repent was costly to him. It was financially costly to him, but potentially even relationship costly to him. Repentance looks like that sometimes. Our repentance before God costs us something oftentimes. This is going to cost Zacchaeus something. He's going to repent, but he's going to repent in a pretty extraordinary and powerful way. Again, in contrast to the rich young ruler who refused to give up his possessions and follow after Jesus, Zacchaeus offers it up with nobody suggesting it. It's a representation of the the faith that had sparked in him just by what he had already heard about Jesus and now seeing Jesus and being seen by Jesus and having his sin pointed out by the crowd He instantly recognized it and said, I've got to repent. He turns towards Jesus Christ. And that's when Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. The two messages to two different groups there. The first message is really to Zacchaeus. Your faithful response of repentance in this moment, it brings your salvation. Imagine this wee little man had to climb up in a tree to see Jesus that day. The people see him as a sinner. That's his reputation. He gets to hear from Jesus himself today, the Son of God, the Messiah, God incarnate. Salvation has come to your house today. Man, how powerful that moment must have been for Zacchaeus. But it was also intended, I think, to be a powerful moment for the crowd as well. Not just that they get to see his salvation, but they now get to see God's intention and God's purpose. When Jesus reminds them of something he said elsewhere in, in the scriptures, he's said this other times during his ministry, but his whole purpose here is to seek and to save the one who was lost. The Son of Man, in verse 10, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The view that many of the people seem to have is that God exists for the righteous, that Jesus existed, came to the earth for the righteous, but in fact, Jesus didn't come for the righteous, he came for the unrighteous. He saw that they were desperately in need of salvation, that they needed somebody to work on their behalf. They needed an advocate with God the Father. And Jesus came to seek and to save them, to be their Savior. That's why we call him Savior. That's who we were. We were the lost in this world. And yet Jesus sought us out and he saved us. It's a pretty powerful picture, and I think it's just an amazing contrast to the rich young ruler in chapter 18. Uh, It does maybe cause some confusion, I think, because we have this very clear understanding that we are saved by grace through faith apart from works. And then we look at the situation with Zacchaeus, and you could look at that and say, well, look, he was saved because he was giving away his money to the poor, because of his works. Uh, The way I would explain it is this, the works that Zacchaeus does are the overflow of the faith that already existed in him. By faith, he recognized Jesus as the Savior, 
And because he recognized that, it caused in him, it bore this fruit of good works. The good works make the faith evident. It becomes clear to us. But faith is always the root of the tree of salvation. Works are always the fruit of the tree of salvation. That outward visible thing that comes from that planted faith that he seems to have uh, in order to come to this point of repentance on that day. Well, while Jesus has their attention now, everybody's stopped and everybody's listening to him. He wants to teach some more things to his disciples. He wants to speak to the crowd a little bit. So he's going to use this opportunity uh, to give us a very long and confusing parable. Uh, I don't say that often, but uh, some of the parables are just a little bit confusing. And so you really have to spend a little time uh, breaking down and finding understanding in them to see what Jesus is saying. Uh, Part of the situation here is that Jesus is speaking to multiple groups in this particular parable. Uh, I think he's speaking to the unbelieving crowd and he's speaking to his disciples. And so there's going to be kind of multiple messages that he brings through this one parable. The other reason I think it gets confusing uh, is people uh, sometimes, um, as we're trying to determine the details of a parable, we get so caught up in all the details that we miss the point. And this one has a lot of details, so we might end up missing the point. So let's see if I can bring a little bit of clarity beyond the confusion I just brought you there. But I did warn you, it is confusing, so... Verse 11, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then returned. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and went and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that those slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, master, your minna has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, uh, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are an exacting man, and you take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and rejoicing what I did not uh, sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, master, He has 10 minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does not have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. There is a lot going on in that parable. 
Uh, one of the things going on that might be a little confusing is it sounds very similar to a different parable, the parable of talents that Jesus shared. I believe Jesus shared many of his stories and teachings on a regular basis in different locations in a different city now. I'm going to share the same story I shared over there. But I also think, like any good preacher, he alters it slightly for the circumstances. The circumstances here is that there's this crowd of people around Jesus who, uh, they're there for the show, but many of them are there to defeat him, the religious leaders and uh, those who are unwilling to accept him as the Messiah. And then he also has his disciples. So he's going to address those two groups, those who don't believe he's the Messiah and those who are his disciples. So he's going to address those two groups with this parable. Now, let me introduce you to the cast of the parable first. First of all, there is this noble man. The noble man uh, has uh, a job to do. He has to go to a different place, a distant land. We don't know where it is. The noble guy is going to leave for a distant place, and there he's going to receive a kingdom. I don't know why he's going to receive a kingdom. Maybe he won Publisher's Clearinghouse, or uh, maybe it's his inheritance, or maybe he has sent an army out and they've won a war. We don't know. That's backstory. It's unimportant. Just know he's got to go someplace else and receive a kingdom, something that has never happened to me uh, and likely is not going to in this sense, but that's what he's got to do. So... When he leaves to receive his kingdom, he's got to leave all of his people in charge of his business. His business still has to continue on. So he brings together his slaves. I know it's a word we don't like, but that's the word that's there. He brings together his slaves, those people who are working for him, and he gives them each 10 minas. So that's the second group in the cast, the slaves. They've each given 10 minas, which minas not a lot to us if we don't know what a mina is. Um, the, the groan. Is this the same grumbling that Zacchaeus heard? I don't know. That joke was sinfully bad. <laughs> Amina is about a hundred days wages, maybe three months wages. He gives them that much money. The idea is just that he gave them quite a bit of money and he put them in charge of that money. And he said, I need you to continue to do business until I get back. And there'll be an accounting of what you've done with that when I get back. And then there's this third group, the citizens of his new kingdom. When they hear that he's coming to receive the kingdom, they send out a delegation to him. Uh, essentially, if you could imagine people like picketing him, basically saying, we don't want this guy uh, to be our king. We don't want him to rule over us or reign over us, it says in verse 14. So that's the setup for this. He's got to go away for a long journey to inherit a kingdom. He's left some disciples, or I'm sorry, he's left some servants, some slaves in charge. He's given them a lot of money. There's going to be an account for that. In the meantime, there's the political intrigue. The citizens of the new kingdom don't want him as their king. Well, he gets back from receiving the kingdom. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to audit the workers. What did you do with the minas that I gave you? And so the first guy comes to him of 10. The first guy comes to him and he says, you gave me 10. I turned it into 10 more. And his response is, you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be an authority over 10 cities. Now think about this. He just received a kingdom. This slave because he was faithful, is now going to put, put in charge of 10 cities in that new kingdom. That's pretty cool. He went from slave to boss man really fast. 
because of his faithfulness. Then the next guy comes. He said, well, I turned your ten into five more. I gained five minas from the ten you gave me. And Jesus says, well, I'll put you in charge of five cities in my new kingdom. Promotions all around, right? Then the third guy comes and says, I just put that stuff in a hanky because I did not want to mess this up. Because I knew you'd be very angry at me if I lost your money. So here's your money back. Well, the nobleman is pretty angry with this guy. He calls him a worthless slave. He steals this guy's money. or he, It's not stealing. It was actually the, king's, the nobleman's money. But he takes that guy's money and he gives it to the guy that was faithful to earn 10. And the people are like, well, that's pretty rude. <laughs> I mean, this guy's already got 10 and now this guy's got nothing. But it's a pretty simple construct He wasn't told to take the ten minas and just hold on to him until he got back. He was given instructions. You need to be about my business until I get back. You need to do something with this. There needs to be some return on the investment. And he didn't do the thing he was instructed to do. That's what made him a a worthless slave. The picture here of these three guys... These three guys that were left with the ten is the faithful ones are the ones who served until the king returned, who did the thing he asked them to do. And the unfaithful one is the one who was given much but did nothing with it. Well, of course, there's a little picture in there for the disciples. Jesus is going to receive the kingdom of heaven at the ascension. And he says he's going to prepare a place for them in the Gospel of John. He's he's doing this. It's intentional. But while he's gone, he's left his disciples, that's us, in charge of his business, the business of the kingdom of God. And he wants us to use what he has given us to benefit that kingdom. And for those of us who do that faithfully, there will be a reward at the end. And for those who do nothing with what God has given them, they will be called worthless. There is no reward for them. Again, you could get confused and think this is works-based salvation. This is not about salvation. This is about rewarding the saved. For those who are faithful with what God has given you, There is a reward for that. Now, I'll be honest, and this is just a terrible vision of, like, laziness. I don't want to be in charge of 10 cities. Sounds really hard, right? Like, there's a part of me that's like, wow, I don't know about all this. But I do want to be faithful with what I have. I do want that at the very least, whatever God has expected of me or given to me. I want to be faithful with that. I want to return to him through my works, praise and worship. I want to glorify him by the doing of things on this world. I want to walk in the good works he's prepared for me in advance. And if there are rewards to come, there are rewards to come. That's wonderful. That's great. But that's what I'm concerned about. I want to be faithful to the one who is my master, to my Savior, to my Lord.
Now, there's another group that we've forgotten about, though. That's the citizens who did not want the nobleman to reign over them. Jesus says to those citizens, to these enemies of mine, in verse 27, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Again, he's speaking to two groups, to the disciples, the servants of the nobleman Jesus. He wants them to be faithful in their servanthood until he returns. But to those who refuse to be reigned by or ruled over by Jesus Christ, for those folks, destruction comes when Jesus returns. It's a pretty simple telling of the story of God, isn't it? This is what we understand as the gospel, that we would serve him faithfully. For that we receive rewards. But for those who refuse to be ruled by God, for refuse to be ruled by Jesus Christ, for them comes destruction. It's not a place in his kingdom, it's a place in hell. That's the idea. A pretty powerful sermon since he has everybody's attention on his way to Passover to celebrate in Israel. It is interesting. It does tell us why he wanted to tell these, this particular parable. There in verse 11, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. I think there's a third reason why he told this parable. The first, of course, is to warn those who don't want him to be their king that there will be destruction for that. The second is to warn those who are his followers to faithfully serve him until he returns. But the third is to his followers and to anyone, really, the kingdom is not going to come immediately. He's got to go to a distant land and then return. Jesus is going to go to the heavenly kingdom and prepare a place for us, and then he will return. And until that time, we're supposed to serve. And I think he's understanding that there is going to be this group of people, even amongst his disciples, that even no matter how many times he's told them now, multiple times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer and die, that as he approaches Jerusalem, they're going to think, this is it. He's going to stand up as king in this moment when he gets there. And I didn't just make that up, but you can kind of see it in the next section. So let's look at verse 28. After he, again, that's Jesus, had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Uh, when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone, says, uh, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Uh, boy, I'm losing my sight here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As they were going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Well, Jesus now working from Jericho. Again, it's 15 miles to Jerusalem. Uh, he's going to stop just short. Uh, the, the, the twin cities, you could call them cities, but what you really want to think of them is like tiny little villages, a, a couple dozen houses that are just kind of around each other, Bethany and Bethphage. And it's from those cities at the Mount of Olives where he's going to be going every night for the rest of his life. So he'll go into the city of Jerusalem during the day. It's two miles from there. Uh, And from there, he'll teach. He'll confront religious leaders. He'll be inspected by the people as a lamb going to slaughter. And then in the evenings, he'll go back to Bethany and Bethphage. He'll hang out at the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olivet. This is kind of his pattern for the next couple of days of his life, the last couple of days of his life. But as he approaches Bethany and Bethphage on this particular occasion, which is on the Mount of Olives... Uh, he tells them to his disciples to go into this city before he gets there, Bethphage, Bethany, go into the city. I want you to grab a, a colt of a donkey that has never been ridden and bring it to me that I can ride it into the city. Now, this is kind of weird, right? Like Jesus didn't often do this. He wasn't looking for public transportation. But Jesus is trying to paint a picture for the people. He wants them to see something. Now, again, it's not just Jesus going to Jerusalem at this time. This is the time of the Passover. So there's likely a lot of people going along into Jerusalem. Jesus just happens to be part of that group. Uh, So now imagine the the Mount of Olivet. Olivet's over here. (laughs) Jerusalem is another mount. That's why I always say we're going up to Jerusalem because you have to go up to get into Jerusalem. In between is what's known as the Kidron Valley. And in the Kidron Valley is essentially just where the bodies were buried. This is the cemeteries. This is where everybody was buried, essentially, in kind of that Kidron Valley. So he's going to be leaving from this mount to go through this valley, to descend from there up into Jerusalem, going through the cemeteries of the the saints of old, the people of Israel from that time. So... Uh, That's kind of the plan that he has, but he's going to ride this colt. Uh, He gives instructions to his disciples. When you get into that town and you go and tie the colt, just so you know, some owners of the colt might be concerned about that. Just tell them the Lord has need of it. I don't know if Jesus prearranged this or this was kind of this miraculous moment where they were just like, okay, the Lord has need of it. These are not the colts you're looking for. I don't know exactly how that worked out, but... um, in some way, the disciples did exactly what he said. The owner of the colt said, hey, why are you untie him? They said the Lord has need of him, and apparently they were okay with this. They bring this colt to Jesus, and they lay their coats on the colt. And then the, the crowd starts laying their coats on the ground in front of Jesus. I like to envision it like a red carpet entrance. For two miles <laughs> through a valley, they're, they're essentially creating a road for Jesus to ride this donkey on. Now, 
I'm trying to not get into the comic relief of all of this because I'm trying to imagine a donkey that's never been ridden being ridden for the first time. Apparently, they were very skilled with donkeys back then. But in my mind, that doesn't seem like something that would work very well. But it does, apparently, because they're going to bring Jesus. And again, I'm sure that they're, they've got this donkey like tied up pretty good and they're dragging him along or something like that. But again, it's creating an image. Now, imagine this image as he comes down. He descends from the Mount of Olives and he works his way up to Israel where the temple of God is. There's crowds of people around him. There's coats being laid on the ground before him. It would look like this kind of an amazing parade going into Israel. Jesus is being announced as he comes into Israel. And some people would even look at this uh, in, in a very prophetic way. Like this would be like a king coming to get his kingdom, potentially. Kind of like that previous parable. In fact, as they're singing, it's really interesting, they sing... Uh, they're shouting, it says in verse 38, but they shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118 that talks about the coming Messiah. Uh, you've, you've heard, uh, this is the day that the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. That's the verse right before this. This is the day that the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The day that the Lord has made, it's not today. It's the day of the coming Messiah. They're singing about the coming Messiah as he comes into Jerusalem. His disciples are. It's kind of a cool image. It's kind of a cool picture as he comes in. They're singing peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Again, he's just told them the kingdom's not immediate. But they don't quite get it yet. I think they really did think this was his coronation parade. And he's heading up to be made king of the nation of Israel. It is also interesting, uh, there would have been singing at this time anyway. When the pilgrims, not the pilgrims that came on the Mayflower, the pilgrims, the Jewish pilgrims on their way to the temple to worship, they would sing Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. They're called the Psalms of Ascent. As you're ascending, as you're going up into Jerusalem, you would sing these psalms. And even as you go into the temple, they would sing different ones on each step of the temple. They're singing a song that's not on the normal playlist. It's a, just a little bit different. All of this just pointing to who Jesus is, but he's not going to be king yet. He's going first to be suffering servant as he goes up in this moment. Now, the religious leaders, it says in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, the religious leaders recognize this. They're like, wait a second, they're calling him the king. Surely Jesus doesn't believe he's the king. Jesus, tell your disciples to knock it off. And I kind of wish he would have. Because he says after that, if they were quiet, the stones would begin to sing. That is not a Rolling Stones reference, by the way. It's the... Who played Jesus' coronation? The stones. <laughs> no. All the rocks on the ground, the earth itself would be declaring that he is the king. How cool that moment could have been. But no... He said, I won't silence them. He's going to continue to allow them to call him the king who comes in the, in the day of the Lord, in the name of the Lord. You see, he's accepting this worship as being the king, the promised Messiah. But when he gets close to Jerusalem, he sees the city and he begins to weep over it. 
It says in verse 42, what he said is, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. At the end of that, in verse 44, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. There might be a crowd outside that is singing that Jesus is the king, but the city of Jerusalem is not waiting for their king to arrive. They're not expecting their king in any way in this day. And because of that, they've rejected him as king. And he lets them know it could have been different from them. And I don't know how that all plays out prophetically. I don't know how that all plays out logically. But it seems to me that the perfect plan of God, the perfect will of God, would be that he would have been received in that moment. But the foreknowledge of God was that he wouldn't be. And I wouldn't say he's going with plan B because it was a foreknowledge. He already knew what was going to happen. This was ultimately the plan that Jesus would be crucified. But he's just lamenting how it could have been so much different if the people of God would have just received him. I often think about that for ourselves, how different our world could be if we would just surrender to Jesus Christ we would just recognize that we should surrender ourselves to the God who created everything. It's Jesus who spoke into the darkness, created the light. If the world would just see that, imagine how different it would be. Of course, we know it won't be. We know that all of this must be continued on until God's plan is ultimately finished. In there is this prophecy that the city of Jerusalem is going to fall. And and most commentators would see this as connected to the actual fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And we're told that this is in response to Jerusalem not responding to Jesus when he showed up. That's the way it says it there in verse 44. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So it just says it like this. um, Days will come in verse 43. Uh, upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. That's exactly what happened at Jerusalem. The Romans barricaded the city. Uh, They built this ramp to go in. But anyway, they surrounded it. They hemmed them in on every side. They leveled the city, even taking every stone down from the temple. In fact, there is no temple there today. It's called Temple Mount. You don't go to the temple of God. You go to Temple Mount. There's There's no temple there anymore. It was all torn down. So Jesus is weeping over what's about to happen there. Well, it's been a good day for Jesus, but in verse 45, it continues. It says, as he enters the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it, uh, you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. So as he gets into Jerusalem, finally, the first thing he does is he cleans house. It is under new management is kind of the idea, right? Like he's coming into town and he goes into the temple courts. This is not the only time he did this, by the way. There's other recorded incidences in the gospels where Jesus cleaned out the temple courts. Uh, the reason this was so offensive to him, the way the, that God had organized the temple there was the temple courts, but then in these, uh, there was the temple itself, but then there were these courts around it called the courts of the Gentiles. Because they were not Jewish, they couldn't go into the more holy places, but the Gentiles could still be part of the worship of God in the court of the Gentiles. 
Well, these people had turned the court of the Gentiles not into a place of prayer, but into a mall, into a swap meet. And so those Gentiles who wanted to know what God was like, wanted to know what the people of God should be doing, they show up into the place that they're invited into, and they just look around, and it just looks like a flea market. This is what your religion is? Selling of trinkets? It just looks like all the other religions. Jesus chases these guys out. He quotes probably from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7, but uh, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You made it a den of robbers. It was a temporary cleaning. They're going to come back the next day. Not a good day for business today. Crazy guy chasing people around the temple. We'll try again tomorrow. What Jesus is going to do for the rest of his time there is have these teaching and confrontation sessions. He's still preparing his people for his departure. And so that's what he's doing. Uh, He's teaching, but uh, the people are just hanging on every word he says. Again, he teaches with authority like somebody they've never heard before. He's teaching all of these things to these people. And yet we have to remember behind it all that the religious people, the, the leading men, the chief priests, the scribes, they're looking to, it says in verse 47, they're looking to destroy him. They just couldn't do it. Because there's so many people watching. Because if you're going to murder somebody, you don't do it in front of a crowd. And that's what this is. I think of the craziness of this. Listen to this group of people again. The chief priests, the most religious people in the nation of Israel. The scribes, these are the ones who are in charge of translating and writing out the word of God. Making the copies of it and interpreting it for people. And then all the leaders of the people, these three groups, they want to destroy Jesus. It doesn't sound like very good leadership. It doesn't sound like very good religion. That's the circumstance Jesus finds himself in. So that's Luke 19. And I would just say as, an, as a general sense of this. Yes, we see what Jesus is doing, but unless we can be those faithful servants, those who are faithfully doing the things that God has asked us to do, that's really our marching orders going forward as believers. We're going to faithfully serve him with what we have until the day that he comes again to establish his kingdom. If you don't want him to reign over your life, destruction awaits you at his return. It's as simple as that. You avoid that by being like Zacchaeus, turning away from your sin, and letting salvation come to your house. Well, in preparation for next week, I want you to have a conversation about this with some folks this week. We covered a lot in chapter 19. Have a conversation with some folks. See what kind of things stuck out to you, what kind of things stuck out to them. Do it at lunch today, do it with your coworkers at work, your friends at school. Invite somebody over to your house and turn it into a home fellowship. Uh, but just have that conversation with somebody. If you don't think that's going to work out for you, have a conversation before you leave here today. you got all kinds of people around you. But just kind of, what are the things that you saw in the Word and what are you going to do about it? What are the things they saw in the Word and what are they going to do about it? Let, let's take these things beyond just the hearing of the Word. Let's become doers of the Word. And then prepare your heart for next week when we look at chapter 20. 
uh, where Jesus is going to handle a number of different things. There's going to be some parables in there. There's going to be that tribute to Caesar. And then, of course, uh, the discussion of whether or not there is a resurrection from the dead at all. So let me pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, so thankful for your word and for the people of this church. And uh, Lord, I know they, they must love the word because they keep coming back. Lord, I'm so thankful for that, so blessed and so honored, and would pray that you would uh, be helping uh, them to, to, to make personal application from these things, that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to them even now, and that as your Spirit speaks to them, Lord, uh, you would use these things to conform them more to the image of their Son. Lord, help them to be faithful servants of you, we would pray. And Lord, I would ask as well that you would... Um, Help those who are unwilling to submit to you to recognize their sin and their need for salvation. That they would surrender to be citizens of your kingdom. Father, in all of these things, that we want to cry out with the, with the crowd, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, for these things, we thank you and we love you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.